if the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Welcome to a state sale. I'm Lori Lattimore Volkman. And I'm Brad Rayleigh. Today we're going to talk about the excellent book from Robert Jones, White Too Long, and how the white supremacy steeped in the evangelical church and its history and its beginning is continuing to help corrupt our national message on racial unity and justice. And Brad is going to give us a little overview and take us into what, what this book is really telling us about our church and our politics today. Yeah, so uh, Jones is a former Southern Baptist who actually went to seminary. He went to, he grew up in Mississippi and Texas. He went to seminary at um, uh, Southwestern and then did a PhD at Emory in religion. I believe he clearly has a background in social sciences because he is very adept at polling and statistics and knows how to use that kind of data. But he starts out essentially with the, rather stunning statement that the denomination that he was raised in was started and founded by people who believed that chattel slavery was not only tolerable um, to Christians, but was actually um, God-ordained. And so from the very beginning, the Southern Baptist Convention, and he takes pains to point out that every other major denomination also split, the Episcopalians, Methodists, Presbyterians, um, most of them reunified after, and I'll get back to that in a second. So Southern Baptists aren't unique, but they, they are in the sense that the uh, Southern Baptist ministers who led that uh, Southern uh, support of slavery were the most vocal defenders of slavery, not just as a necessary evil, but as a godly ordained part of society. And so uh, Manley, the, the first president, uh, traveled around the South, uh, gave the invocation uh, at uh, Jefferson Davis's inauguration, one of the most vocal defenders of slavery. And that continued. Now, the, you know, it shifts after the war when they lose. But what, what Jones actually connects in is that what um, replaced it was very similar to what historians refer to as the lost cause mentality among the South, that actually they, they framed it in a lost cause, cause theology that still framed uh, a slave-based white uh, supremacist society as a superior one, and that that would, that would somehow rise from the ashes and at some point uh, perfect uh, society the way that they, they thought it would. One yeah, of the things I found fascinating, you and I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, but I, I kind of learned about the history of the church in the 90s when I was working for a state Baptist convention newspaper and the Southern Baptist convention as a national convention decided to apologize for slavery. And this was in 1995. First time I really realized this denomination had been founded on slavery. Right. But Robert Jones notes something I did not know was that the conversation initially was over missionaries and whether someone was going to be a missionary, whether it was ethical for them to be a slaveholder. One of the things that he argues that I think is incredibly compelling, incredibly confronting, is that previous historians had essentially seen white Christians of all denominations, evangelicals or mainstream, 
as kind of passive, you know, they weren't really fans of slavery, but they didn't stand up against it. They were just sort of pulled along in it. They were complicit, but not. And he says, no, he says, actually, and I'm, I'm adding this language, but white Christianity, not just in the South, not just in Southern Baptist has been the mother dough for the sourdough of slavery. It's been what has kept it afloat. And he connects that in the whole period during Reconstruction and after, and especially around the turn of the century when you get the rise of all these monuments. Most of those monuments are erected by a Christian Confederate group. And so they have these gigantic ceremonies. He pointed out that in Richmond, Virginia, which of course is famous for that uh, avenue of these gigantic statues, including you know Robert E. Lee on a on a giant horse. All those kind of uh, statues were had these huge ceremonies, and at the same time they built this huge avenue. All the white churches moved closer, so they moved and built buildings. It was it was connecting in this Christian white supremacist white nationalist thing in a very kind of concrete way. These were all part of the same religious expression. And, um, you know, he's got some horrific stories of lynching one of them where, um, I mean, it's just unbelievable. It was on a Sunday afternoon and, um, the man was pulled out of prison, out of jail and taken out in the crowd, uh, taken out in the field to be lynched. And people left church, literally left church and flocked to go see this. And then some people there heard them expressing, (laughs) amens and you know glory to god and all this as this man is tortured and burned alive and i mean it's just it's just absolutely horrific you know a lot of that we knew Uh, we knew about the horrors of lynching but i think his argument about how christians themselves in what whatever form or another helped continue this process whether it was in the south with these uh monuments you know you had jim crow in the south and in the north it was james crow it was, you know, it was not, it was not an official thing. And, and so uh, Jones actually points out to in St. Louis, Missouri in the 20th century, where you had deed restrictions put on houses that said they could not be sold uh, to black people. Some of those movements were led by, uh, I mean, the, the, the movement that was doing that was centered in an Episcopal church in St. Louis. I mean, at these, you know, almost every place. And he, again, he's not just picking on the South. He's got examples, and you may have heard this in the interview he did with um, Fresh Air, I think, where he's talking about that there was a priest in New York City with a with a, a bullwhip or a, or a club keeping black people out of this, that they segregated black Catholics into their own parish and kept them out of the, yeah. the white ones. And so, you know, it is absolutely not just a Southern thing. But it is a continual kind of thread throughout history. And, and, I, and I have to say, real quick, I just have to connect in some of these other things I've, I have been reading over the last years. One of the things we know is that the rise of the religious right, Jerry Falwell, Paul Weirich, all those people, they told a story for years. That it was about abortion. It was about gays. It was about women. Randall Balmer has the receipts on this. They... They absolutely got together. They were mad because uh, Bob Jones University was losing their its tax-exempt status um, with the IRS because they had bans on interracial dating. That's why they got together. The white supremacy has been in front of us the entire time. I don't think we should be surprised. But I thought it was really interesting that Jones points out how they use so much of the Bible to justify it. Because if you literally read the Bible and it mentions slaves should obey their masters, that right there justified slavery for them. 
Yes, and I'll, I'll point you to a, uh, a video that you might be able to pull some clips out of. John MacArthur, who is a well-known uh, evangelical minister in California, he has a video where he talks about the fact that slavery has gotten a bad rap. It's a stunning thing. So that idea, Bible never really openly denouncing slavery and only talking about it in terms of improving or tweaking it, that's still there. I mean, like this year, you know, that kind of thing. So it's still there. They really believed that the white European had this mandate from God to be the leaders. You know, they, they were the ones who were empowered. And I thought, we don't even talk about the fact that they're just starting from this premise that Jesus was white, as if Jesus were a white European, which, right. as we know, Don Jr. thinks as well. But And uh, Eric Metaxas. And uh, I mean, the, the people have made this argument. I remember when it first occurred to me how absurd that was, but it did not occur to me all the time I was growing up. You just see the pictures in the Bible and the Bible stories. It didn't occur to me until I was an adult and someone pointed it out and I was like, oh, right. <laughs> like, and, and you, so you recognize how easy it is to just go along with the narrative because that's right. all that's around you. So if you are white growing up in a church, in an evangelical church and particularly a Southern Baptist church, like you and I did, highly possible you just don't even you're just not even exposed to the fact that that's you're right. wrong that's because right. it's all around you yes and what i really liked what he said and i i want to ask you about this because i'm sure you know we have the same experience you and i grew up in a southern baptist church outside the bible belt so we weren't even in the really fire and brimstone country i don't recall a sermon on civil rights or racial justice or social injustice or racial equality in his whole time, you know, 40 years in the church, never had any kind of message about racial injustice and the idea of the church, you know, trying to promote social justice. Like that was just never there. Yeah. And so, and so there's two points there that I agree with completely. Thinking about that, that I was born in 1965, the, the year of the, uh, the Voting Rights Act. You know, Martin Luther King was, was assassinated in my lifetime. Busing was enacted in my lifetime. And yet in the churches I grew up in, as you just said, no discussion whatsoever about that. I mean, you would never know that just in the last 10 to 15 years. And if you add in redlining, if you add in those deed restrictions and stuff like that, it was concurrent. It was happening into the 70s for sure. Um, but there was absolutely no discussion, no awareness, no. And so I, you know, when I talked to my friends from that time, some of them are your friends too. Um, you know, there is this, this complete, um, that's a thing of the past. I mean, it's, it's as if it, it just never really happened. That was that interesting message from 1995 when the Southern Baptist convention right. goes through its apology, which Robert Jones talks about. And he mentions, you know, on the one hand, it's very symbolic and it's good that they they made that public gesture. But right. on the other hand, absolutely nothing has changed in the way they've practiced their faith or, or, or certainly practiced social justice. The whole white nationalist theme comes up again and again and again within the church, particularly Southern Baptist Convention. So not right. only have they not really followed up with it, they've actually just done the opposite of what they supposedly were apologizing for. Right. But I can also tell you, I could have predicted that because I was at that meeting and as symbolic as it is, they debated. They didn't want, you know, most of them didn't want to do it. 
I remember my response because I had an argument with somebody about this. I know that's shocking, but um, <laughs> my response was, yeah, that's really brave in 1995 when um, you're not uh, facing lynching like uh, uh, civil rights workers were in the in the South. You know, it's real brave of you to apologize for this. And then when you factor in what you just said, that it was basically a lukewarm to begin with. And then Robert Jones actually notes how they brought out a black pastor to accept everybody's apology, which a lot of other black ministers were like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. You don't get to speak for all of us. That's, right, um, right. you know, there's a couple other points from the book. I mean, it's it's a really good book. And I, I it's been confronting um, the there's some of it I, I struggle with just because of the statistical analysis and all this. But one of the things he really tracks, and this is this is current. This is not historical, although it's connected to the historical. He's got the polling data and he's in the book. He actually has the questions that are asked of people and they have to do with racial kind of assumptions. Uh, first of all, he talks about something called a warmth index where they actually just ask people how they feel about African-Americans. And oddly enough, white evangelicals uh, score pretty highly on that. They perceive themselves to see black people warmly. <laughs> but then you start, then you dig into some of these different questions and it has to do with like, you know, how you see monuments, how you see uh, black athletes protesting, how you see uh, police brutality, how you see uh, even the idea of systemic racism. Um, and as it comes out and, and he's again, got the receipts here that actually, if you attend a white church and it doesn't have to be evangelical, it can be, in fact, that the, the highest area is the Northeast. Uh, primarily, I think his conclusion is because it's, um, such a diverse, I mean, the Catholics, uh, mainline Protestants, you know, there's very few evangelicals and that's, that's part of it there. Right. But in right. the South, in the Northeast and the South, if you go to a white church, you are more likely, not less likely, more likely to hold racist views. Yeah. And that was the that was the kind of like jaw drop, like, whoa, you know, you 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 expect and and our 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 the church friends that we grew up in expect somehow, and he talks about this too. There is this an assumption of of sort of the moral innocence of church, the church by itself. If you go to a church, that's a that's an automatic good thing. You know, that how can that be perceived as a bad thing that you go to this church? So there's this perceived innocence there. And so most of those people, I think, generally assume that going to church makes you a more moral person, makes you a better person. Absolutely. One of the things that Jones really talks about is the theology behind this. And and he this is where the white evangelical experience is the most I think problematic here. This belief in this, uh, this focus on the personal relationship with Christ, uh, which is right. what we were all kind of raised with. Uh, James Cone, uh, in his book, he's a deceased African American theologian. Um, he and others have referred to these uh, kind of slaveholder religion in the, in the South, where they essentially told, and Billy Graham did this, he told African-Americans, you're not going to get racial justice here on earth. You have to wait for heaven for that to happen. Um, in the meantime, you should just focus on your relationship with, with God. Now, what Jones actually connects that into is that Christians then see almost all societal issues in a one-on-one -on -one exchange. It's, it's an individualistic kind of issue. So for them... And I have found this to be proven out in my discussions um, most recently. 
they see racism only in the context of those individual failings, individual biases, individual prejudices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their discussion about working on that is to address those individual failings of the heart or my least favorite way that they talk about it as racism as a sin issue, <laughs> which as I pointed out to several people online and, and in person, um, in their theology, because I was raised in it, as you were you, we are all sinners. So if you're blaming this on sin, it's sort of like saying, I think there's an oxygen issue involved. We all breathe oxygen. Right. Therefore, I'm sure this has to do with that. And so it is, there is a complete denial among this set of systemic or institutional issues. Um, and so it makes sense that they then so they can say I'm warm towards African-Americans. But then when you talk about individual issues, it comes down to, well, um, individual white people who are racist need to fix that. And black people need <laughs> yeah. to work harder and they need to, um, you know, stay out of jail and not get divorced and not have kids out of wedlock and all those kinds of things. All this individual responsibility kind of stuff, nothing to do with systemic issues. And I pointed out to a friend, one of the things that's become so clear to me, just as some of these things I was, I was reading to you earlier have made these things really clear, is that you, honestly, I think you can, it's fair to say to people, if you believe this is all just about individual action, and then you look at some of the basic kind of realities, Ron Sider even talked about this, the fact that black wealth is significantly lower yeah. than white wealth, that uh, black families are less likely to have access to a home as an investment that they can pass on to their kids. If they do own a home, it probably has less value. There was a story just last week in Facebook about a mixed race couple who had their house um, uh, appraised, and the first appraisal came in a good fifty to seventy thousand dollars lower than all the houses in the area. They took out all the pictures of the African American uh, part of the interracial couple had it reappraised and it went back up to the, 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 the norm. Um, that's, you know, that's so, so anyway, but back to what I tried to frame to my friend, either you have to address this as a systemic issue, or you have to say, I think black people don't work as hard and are not as smart. I mean, those are the only two options. If you're looking at that disparity, basically an openly racist view towards African-Americans or you accept that there's an institutional and systemic racism at heart. The racism was very subtle that he, when he looks back, when he looks back at his time in his church, it was partly the absence of any talk about racial justice and systemic racism. Very subtle in the way everything happened. Everybody's white. The way you frame your experience and your religious faith and your practice was that you're better than everybody else. It's not like anybody's saying white nationalist kinds of things. They're acting like white supremacists just in the way they view the world and view what they do and who they are and who they are in God's eyes, you know? <laughs> like, right. I've always struggled with this because growing up in the church and then more specifically when I was working in the denomination, every February when it was Black History Month, white churches would pair up with a black church. They would do partnerships within the community for different events for that month. Mm. And on the surface, that's 
fine, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But when I think back, and when you when you really think about how it came about and how we would how we would actually do it, it still was the white church acting as if they had to take care of the black church. I mean, the, the yes. idea that underlied the whole thing was that white people are better and they need to help save the black people. And I know no one would admit that. <laughs> Nobody no. would say that. And I don't even know that a lot of the, the black people would want to acknowledge that. This has historic roots in uh, Lottie Moon. Uh, when I was in high school, I acted out a part in a Lottie Moon play that we did, celebrating, you know, this this famous missionary in Southern Baptist history. Now, as a historian, then I started reading about that time frame, and that's all about the expansion of American empire. And so um, the thing that became known as the white man's burden, the white man's burden right. in the late 19th century was to reach out to and help these, you know, deepest, darkest Africa, uh, these places that were backwards. That has continued. And I agree with you completely. I've had this conversation with several people of who see themselves as racially advanced because they have friends um, who are uh, or they have a, a contingent in their church who is are, are of color. Austin Channing Brown, in her interview with Brene Brown in her podcast, actually talks about this as a proximity uh, issue where white people and she resents it as an African-American woman. She resents somebody using her as a black person to to shill for, you know, I'm I'm racially OK. Look, I'm friends with Austin. Um, nice. And she resents that and, and sees that as dangerous. Um, you know, that is exactly how so many of these churches have, have framed this. They see themselves reaching out to minorities or and, and seeing them as helping them out in a paternalistic uh, way. And Lisa has just been reading Me and White Supremacy. It's a confronting book and it's asking, you know, Lisa's working her way through it. But she was just reading me something about tone policing. And it was it was all in the context of, of race. And I was thinking immediately about that church kind of essence where they were perfectly OK if that black church came to them deferentially. If that black church was angry, that would have been a completely different conversation. After Al Mohler did that, authorized that study of the history of, of the Southern Baptist um, Seminary, and he did so in a very selective way. It was only historical. It was only historical issues. There was no discussion about contemporary racist issues. Well, there's a, a seminary in, uh, in Louisville uh, that is predominantly black um, and has had a, a Baptist connection. And they reached out after that. I mean, it was very, it was very nice. And they reached out to Mohler and said, you know, you've got an endowment of, you know, a billion dollars or something like that. Very wealthy seminary. How about you uh, help us out here? And um, and Moeller's response was reparations are not the answer to racial <laughs> reconciliation. And, right. you know, our so money he, is he, our he, money. <laughs> that's exactly right. In that exchange with other churches, and I can't remember where I heard this or read this, but oftentimes those sister or whatever churches they're the ones that got the they got the old hymnals when the white right. church upgraded the hymnals they got yeah. the the ratty ones they got the sunday school material that had already been scratched through and we know that in the segregated schools they often got the exact same thing in the the leftovers from the white school you know they got the old textbooks they got the you know all of that with the covers gone everything else and i kind of understand the fear that our our white conservative christian friends have i think 
they believe if they really do open up and look at it, they won't be able to function the way they have been. And they're afraid of that. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the anger and pushback on this. I was talking to him about racism and he kind of pushed back at me and said, look, you don't know what's going on inside the church. You haven't been to church in a while. And that's true um, because I, I, I feel mentally healthier, not going to anyway, that's an aside. So, and I just pointed to the polling data and I said, look, I've got the receipts here in this book about what's happening. And he said, well, you don't know what's going, you don't know what we're doing to actually address racial issues. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. Tell me, what are you guys doing? You know, and they're having a black minister in to talk to them. They're, uh, they're doing these things. And then, and then I said, you know, what about voter suppression? What are you guys doing about that? And he said, well, that's a political issue. I don't, that's not a role for the church. And I thought that's exactly what this situation is here. Here's an essential element of democracy. If you believe in democracy, especially if you believe it's God ordained, you have to believe that the vote is, is important. And here is something that we know, in fact, that we are having the vote suppressed and it's aimed predominantly at people of color, at the poor. You know, they're they're going after places that have a higher minority population. I pointed this out to him and I'm like, this is not a political issue. A political issue is when we talk about, you know, uh, how high your tax rate should be and what we do with resources. Um, this is actually a, a human rights issue. And Absolutely. if you guys can't stand up on that, if you can't address that, and I think it is, we're back again to that divide. They see racism just as a personal bias, prejudice, assumption. And I and I don't want to speak for people of color anymore than I want to speak for LGBTQ. But I, I, I keep thinking about this. I have a trans friend who um, just love, and uh, I keep thinking he uh, probably would like Christians to be affirming uh, of his existence and not, you know, but I'm guessing that when it comes right down to it, really, he wants them not to hurt him and not to hurt um, other LGBTQ plus people. Uh, you know, it's one thing for to say, oh, I, I, I have a warm feeling towards black people. Well, maybe don't act to harm them then. You know, yeah. that that's. It's also, what does that say about Christianity when what people are hoping is that they're just not harmed by them, let alone right. welcome and embraced. Right, <laughs> right. Like, that is sad, and but it's yeah. true. It's absolutely true. There's a great article in the New Yorker, getting at a little bit about this whole idea of a political issue in the church that I thought was really interesting because it it looks at the viewpoint from the black church and it highlights um, a particular black minister, a woman, um, who you know, always felt herself like not addressing racial injustice from the pulpit because she felt like the, you know, the congregation didn't want to mix politics and faith and they didn't want to deal with that. But she noticed in the last few months, especially with all of the Black Lives Matter protests that were gaining so much traction and, and particularly traction among white people and, and other people of color, right. you know, it's not just, it wasn't just black people protesting, right. that a lot of her younger congregants were upset that she wasn't addressing systemic mm. racism and racial justice issues in the church. Feeling like if anyone's going to talk about how we are not treating people of color, gay people, immigrants appropriately, as you know, as a Christian should, who's going to talk about it? The church is? is the one to talk about this, and that's something that Ron Sider brings up in his latest post, where he's 
talking about why he's going to vote for Joe Biden. And his overwhelming stance is, I do not agree with Joe Biden on abortion, but that is a single issue and it's, it's a complex issue that can't be boiled down to one thing. But what I can look at is when you look at Joe Biden's agenda and you look at the Democratic agenda across so many things, the idea is to uplift the human race, whether it's immigrants or poor people, whether it's providing health care or a tax structure that supports the many over the few rich. That's an agenda that is that the Bible essentially would uphold, you know, this idea of of love and care for those that are not as well off as you. It's really interesting the point that you bring out from Robert Jones about this idea of individual faith, you know, kind of at the root of this. It's like, you know, they just internalize it and those other people are doing the wrong things and that's outside the church and that's outside my faith. And they essentially it's just a way to justify doing nothing and voting against all kinds of things that you know are the right thing to do and you know would right. be the Christian principle. Started to observe, and I, I'm getting some affirmation that that's sort of what Robert Jones is talking about, what other people are talking about, where there was this this personal relationship with God, and that was the focus, and yet there was no real way to connect that to real-world experiences. And so at the time, I was talking about environmental justice or something like that, and somebody could be prayerful and do their Bible study in their quiet time and go to church every time it's open, and then go either you know, buy a gigantic SUV that pollutes or go uh, participate in business in a, in a polluting and destructive, you know, thing and see zero connection between those two. And poverty is another good one, I think, that correlates to that kind of uh, uh, deferential kind of thing. Uh, I have found that my conservative friends believe that they have an obligation to help people who are, are poor, but they want to help the people they want to help. They don't want to help everybody. They want to help people who are deserving. Um, and so what I would do there is I would sort of point out, okay, your vote actually causes more harm to poor people and creates more poor people than your church will ever, ever be able to help. I mean, I just said, let's just look at the numbers. The percentage of dollars that go into food banks, this is the low hanging fruit of addressing poverty, by the way. This is just getting people food. It's like if you had 20 bags of, of groceries that are out there, 19 are paid for with our tax dollars. And, you know, that 20th one is a donation from the church. And those are often combined in ways to make maximize that. And so when people are talking about, well, the church should be the one taking care of the poor, that that way I can justify my vote to to cut welfare. They are lying because they actually if they realize that they are actually the church is incapable of addressing that. And again, that's the easy part. That's that right. is sort of like the easy part is actually trying to convince people if I switch back to race to say, hey, you shouldn't see people of color as less than you. That's the low hanging fruit. The real issue is the systemic. It's the tree underneath it. It's the the infrastructure, the the systems, the institutions that actually perpetuate racism. That's the hard stuff. But you can't even do the easy stuff. You know, and like you said, with the Southern Baptist Convention in 1995, on the anniversary of their 150th anniversary of the 1845 founding of the Southern Baptist Convention, doing this apology, that was the easy thing to do. That was the easy, that was the bare minimum. That was the bare minimum. And and as you're describing, they almost couldn't do that. No. You know? Yeah. And so, and then they thought they were done. It was like, it was like mission accomplished. <laughs> 
Yeah. And then every February, we'll just go partner with the black church and we'll feel good about ourselves. <laughs> Got to give those old hymnals someplace. Of course, now I'm, I'm guessing now with PowerPoint and everything, uh, it's probably giving away old PowerPoint uh, projectors because no one uses actual hymnals. The more I think about it, the more angry I get about it. We were actually living the life that we should be living as, you know, an integrated and equal society that I think God would want us to have. There wouldn't be this thing where we've got to partner with the sister church to take care of them. If we were really doing this right, we'd be integrated and you'd be going to church probably based on different things, not based on, on color. Yeah. Uh, Brene and, and Austin in their conversation, because they were talking about black Jesus and white Jesus. And, and Brene said, tell me about black Jesus. And Austin said, black Jesus uh, doesn't have to be asked uh, if, if uh, he cares about the poor and marginalized. He doesn't have to be prompted to say that black lives matter, and he's not going to resist against that. And she and Brene said, so what about white Jesus? And she said, I see white Jesus as more about power. And I was like, whoa. That was, uh, you know, and I, that's, again, from a black perspective, looking at how the white church has, has responded. And that's exactly what you're describing in this kind of power situation, this power dynamic. We'll deal with people of color on our terms um, right. when we want to. Um, in the ways that we, uh, in ways that are not going to challenge our position. One of the musicians I interviewed for my music podcast um, said, and I thought it was really good. She said, we're going to have to actually be uncomfortable and we're going to have to actually share resources. We're going to have to actually do something that's more than just simply saying, I like people of color. We're going to have to actually do things that are, that are, that are actually meaningful. I'm afraid in my conversations with, with, with white conservative Christians, their viewpoint is so wedded to defining racism in just a certain way. Anytime you get to this kind of discussion, it becomes, oh, that's a liberal policy. Oh, that's socialism. Oh, that's redistribution. Oh, that's, you know, all these kinds of things. And I'm like, until you get to the to the recognition that America was built on redistribution and it was a redistribution upwards of using black bodies and black lives and then and taking away Indian lands and using Asian lives and Asian bodies to build the West and and Irish bodies and Irish lives until you recognize that that was a redistribution of power and resources upwards you're not going to be willing to look at this and I'm afraid this is the pessimistic part of me sorry you caught me on a Maybe <laughs> on a Monday. <laughs> yeah, on Monday, that's right. Seeing that kind of perpetuation of it, not as a historical issue, but as a contemporary every goddamn Sunday, uh, pun intended, um, every Sunday you've got, you've got people going in, having essentially in a very subtle way, never overtly, you know, Heil Hitler from the, from the pulpit, of course, but very subtly reinforcing white lives are a little bit more important. Again, we've got a long ways to go, and you and I are going to have a lot more of this conversation. And um, I bought a beer fridge for a reason. <laughs> awesome. awesome. I feel like I'm, I'm going to need, I don't know, move to a state where marijuana is legal at this point. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it.
By the way, uh, in my conversation with Todd, he told me about a, a story about Jerry Falwell Sr. that I did not know. Jerry Falwell Sr. in the 1960s, of course, told uh, civil rights workers that they were communists. And he also told his he had many sermons about how uh, Christians should not be involved in, in politics because it was too dirty. And then, of course, once the race issue became uh, so much that he wanted to jump on board, uh, he switched and, of course, became, you know, the 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 lead figure for the moral majority. What I didn't know is that he actually went back through his old records and deleted all of he had those expunged from the archives. Any of those sermons, any of the any any evidence that he had actually said those words. I thought that's all you need to know right there. Right. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than 